and that we're reading about in our newspapers every day. After seven seals, there are seven trumpets, and a little later in the book, there are seven plagues. How on earth do all these things relate to each other? Well, some people like to read them chronologically. They say, well, you've got the seven seals, and then a little bit later in history, you've got the seven trumpets, and then a little bit later, you've got the seven plagues, and so it goes. And they say that what we've got in the book of Revelation is a kind of time chart of human history. And the challenge for you and me is to try and work out which chapter we're in this morning. Uh, So, for example, if you think that Adolf Hitler is the beast in chapter 13, they say, well, maybe we're in chapter 14. Now, there are all kinds of problems with reading the book of Revelation like that. Uh, For a start, the commentators just can't agree which particular chapter we are in. Uh, It's just not obvious. Now, surely, Almighty God is speaking in Revelation to be clearly understood. And so he must have made himself clearer than that. The other problem we have in reading it chronologically is that the end of the world seems to be repeated. So back in chapter 7, we had a vision, if you remember, of 144,000 people representing the total number of the people of God in every age, safe and secure in heaven. Surely, that only happens at the end of the world. And yet, in chapter 8, the cycle comes round again, and at the end of chapter 11, we find the end of the world once more. So how does it all fit? Well, those who take that chronological view make it fit by saying that in chapter 7, what happens is that at a particular point in time, God's people are suddenly raptured. You've probably heard that phrase before. In other words, they're taken from the earth to be with Christ in heaven. Meanwhile, human history carries on on earth for everybody who's not Christian. Well, that is a very, very strange view. And yet it is surprisingly popular in many churches in the West today. But when you look more carefully at the Bible text... You have to ask yourself, if chapter 8 and following all takes place after this supposed rapture, why on earth does God bother to tell the people of God about it? Because it's of no interest to them. They're not going to be here. And more than that, the rest of the New Testament says that when Christ comes again uh, to take us to be with him, it's not going to be a silent, quiet, hidden event It's going to be public, and everyone will know about it. So the case for a sudden rapture simply does not stand up, and it isn't taught anywhere else in the Bible. So I think this series of sevens is best understood as parallel pictures of human history. So you get the seals uh, describing the whole of human history until the end of time, And then you have a kind of action replay of the same period of history, but from a slightly different angle. So what we're reading about in the trumpets this morning is the same period of history, 
that was described for us in the seven seals. It's what the Bible calls the last days. And in case you don't know, the last days are that whole period between the ascension of Jesus Christ and his (coughs) return. And as these first six trumpets are blown in chapters 8 and 9, what we're hearing are alarm calls from God. And what he's doing is he's warning us about the seventh trumpet still to come. Because when the seventh trumpet sounds, that will be the end of the world. And what happens at the end of the world is the great division. God's people will be with him in the new creation. And those people who are still in rebellion against God will be separated from him forever. So these six trumpet calls are warnings of the final judgment still to come. They are alarm bells. And the message of this whole passage is wake up. Wake up before it's too late. Now in chapter 8, we listen to the first four trumpets and they are the wake-up call of natural disasters. Then in the first part of chapter 9, we have the wake-up call of pain. And then in the second part of chapter 9, we have the wake-up call of death. Three wake-up calls. Number one, the wake-up call of natural disasters. Now in chapter 8, verse 6 and following, the first four angels sound their trumpets one after the other and they unleash disasters on the four main elements in the natural world. That is to say the land, the sea, fresh water and the sky. Now we've already said in our series that what we have to do is to resist the temptation to interpret Revelation literally or literalistically. Uh, There have been plenty of people who've tried to do that, not least when they look at verse 7. Have a look at it. Verse 7 says, The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, when I was a young adult in the early 1980s, there was a widespread belief that the entire world was about to be consumed in a nuclear holocaust. Some of you will remember the uh, CND movement, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And many people of my generation genuinely believed that we wouldn't live to be 50 or 60 years old. That was the atmosphere of that period of time. And many sincere Christians, reading verse 7, sincerely believed that it was predicting a global nuclear catastrophe. But of course, 40 years later, that hasn't happened. And in any event, that is not the way to read the book of Revelation. Because this, this trumpet is not speaking about one specific event. No, this trumpet is sounding throughout human history. And you and I hear its blast every time that a volcano erupts 
or every time there is a forest fire, as there is in California at the moment, or every time there is an earthquake, or every time there is a tsunami. And please notice that each trumpet, this is very interesting, has a limitation in its effects. Because as the trumpet sounds, no more than a third of the sea or the land or whatever it is will be affected. Now again, you and I mustn't read that literally as if it's exactly a third and no more. Uh, It's simply saying that each disaster is going to be limited in its impact. So, if you like, these trumpets are heralding the end of the world, but they don't actually bring it. It's only a third. Sometimes the devastation might be very severe, at other times more moderate. But the point is that whenever the earth or the sea or the rivers or the heavens are hit by some disaster, you and I as Christian people are to hear the voice of God, the trumpet call of God, saying, wake up. Now, I know perfectly well that events like that do lead some people to question the goodness and the justice of God. Uh, They say, well look, if there really is a God, how can he possibly be allowing such awful and terrible things to be happening? He can't be good, he can't be just. And yet, my very dear friends, John wants you and I to understand the exact opposite. He's saying that these natural disasters are signs that God is just. So look back with me, please, to the beginning of chapter 8, which I didn't ask Mariano to read in the interest of time. But there we have, at the beginning of the chapter, the context for the whole passage. In verse 2 we read that the seven trumpets were given to the angels. Who gave them? Well, God did. So they're under his control. And then we read that another angel approaches the throne of God with a censer of incense. And the incense is in the presence of God along with the prayers of the people of God, verse 4. Now, when we read that, you and I ask ourselves, well, I wonder what on earth these people were praying about. But of course, you see, we've come across the people of God praying before in the book of Revelation. Uh, Do you remember when the fifth seal was opened, back in chapter 6 and verse 10? We saw the martyrs of God, in the presence of God, calling out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And if you are with us, you'll remember that we said at the time, that is not personal vindictiveness. No, they are crying out for justice. Because here are the people of God who died for their faith, and God seems to be doing absolutely nothing about it. And they're crying out, God, don't you care? Do something! Show us that you're just. Well, now, here, in chapter 8, we find the answer to those prayers. Because, verse 5, have a look at it, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it 
on the earth. And uh, the censer with the incense, you see, represents the prayers of the people of God. And as a result, at the end of verse 5, we're told, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now you see, those are all symbols of the judgment of God. And in this way, you see, God is saying, look around you. Listen to the trumpet call of God in every natural disaster. Now you might be saying this morning, well, you know, Simon, I can't really believe there is a God because he doesn't seem to care about all the absolutely horrific things going on in the world. But God says, listen to my trumpet call because that is precisely how much I care. You see, these natural disasters, God says, are signs of my displeasure at human sin. Now don't misunderstand that. That is not to say that the people who find themselves caught up in a natural disaster are more wicked than the rest of us. Far from it. In fact, you probably remember there's a place in the Gospel of Luke uh, where Jesus speaks about a tower. Do you remember this? A tower where um, it had been standing in Siloam, but it had fallen down and 18 people had been killed. And Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, they were not more wicked than anybody else. But, and here's the message, make sure you repent or you also will perish. In other words, it's a warning. It's an alarm bell. The wake-up call of natural disasters. Well, then at the beginning of chapter 9, we have another trumpet, and this is the wake-up call of pain. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. This must be one of the most strange uh, passages in the entirety of Scripture because we have a description of some very, very weird locusts. Uh, you'll notice that they are part lion, part horse, part scorpion. Uh, these locusts are released uh, from the abyss, and that, of course, is hell. And notice that they are released by Satan himself, who here is given a name, the name Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Now, if you know your Old Testament, and uh, everyone at St. Barnabas, of course, does know their Old Testament, you'll be hearing all kinds of Old Testament bells ringing in your ears at this moment, and I hope particularly Exodus bells. Because there are many parallels, you see, between the sufferings that are announced by the trumpets and the plagues inflicted on the people of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. And that parallel is extremely apparent in chapter 9. Do you remember in Exodus that the eighth plague was a plague of? Come on. Thank you. Locusts. Uh, but here in Revelation 9, they aren't biological, natural locusts, because in chapter 9, verse 9, you'll notice they have breastplates of iron, and their wings make the most appalling amount of noise. And uh, we say to one another, well, what on earth does that mean? And uh, the commentators, of course, have an absolute field day with this. 
somebody has suggested that this is a, it's a picture of modern weaponry. Uh, perhaps these are helicopter gunships or, or something like that. But that totally misses the point. Because we're not meant to be looking for creatures exactly like this or even slightly like this bringing chaos on the world. No, John is painting a picture. And what he's doing is he's conjuring up, up an image of horrific, demonic evil. And what he's doing, writing to people who are very familiar with plagues of locusts, is speaking to them in a language that they can understand and giving them a picture of terrible, terrible suffering inflicted by Satan on people throughout human history. But there's a really interesting detail here. This is absolutely fascinating. Because the important detail is that unlike uh, natural locusts, did you notice these locusts don't eat vegetation? Look at verse 4. Verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but, now pay attention, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now this is fascinating, because you see the pain that is inflicted by these locusts is not experienced by those who have been sealed. In other words, this particular pain is not experienced by Christians. Isn't that interesting? Someone say yes. Thank you. You know, now we know from uh, the whole book of Revelation that Christians are going to suffer a great deal in this world. Indeed, their suffering is the entire reason the book was written in the first place. They, they were being persecuted then, and they're still being persecuted today. And the whole purpose of the book, as we discussed in Family Focus, and Jackie put it better than I can, is to give us visions of the kingdom of God that has already broken into human history with the coming of Christ, and will be with us fully when Jesus Christ returns. And what John is doing is encouraging us Christian people to persevere in the face of suffering, trusting God to keep his promise. So it's not saying Christians won't suffer, but the fascinating thing in chapter 9 is that Christians are protected from the particular kind of pain that is inflicted by these locusts. Because it's saying, you see, that there is a kind of suffering that is only experienced by those people who do not know God. By those people who are still in rebellion against him. Marcel Marceau uh, was a famous French mime artist. I wonder if you've perhaps heard the name, perhaps don't know what he did. But he had a sketch in which um, he's in his dressing room and he, he pulls on the mask of a clown. And then he, he goes out to perform for the audience and they're in absolute stitches. They're, they're laughing fit to burst. But then at the end of the performance he returns to his dressing room and uh, he tries to remove the mask. 
and he can't. And uh, in the sketch, you've got this tremendous contrast between the smiling face on the mask and this body contorting in agony as he tries to pull it off. Now that is a very painfully accurate picture of all men and women without God. You see, there's a smiling face, but there's a scream inside. I wonder if some of you have seen a famous painting by the artist Edvard Munch called The Scream. Do you know it? It's quite a famous picture. Well, I think many, many unbelievers have a smiling face, but they have a screaming heart because of the meaninglessness of life without God. Do you think that's right? John Paul Sartre, the um, existentialist philosopher, said, here we are, all of us eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence, and there is nothing, nothing. Absolutely no reason for existence. For some people, it's the scream of guilt. Uh, The writer Kingsley Amos said, I envy you Christians. You've got someone to forgive you. I carry my sins around with me. Guilt. Screaming inside. Or there's the scream of lostness. Uh, This is the person who says, Who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? Sometimes the scream is so profound that death would be a welcome release. But look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, During those days, men, uh, that's unbelievers, will seek death but not find it. They'll long to die but death will elude them. So friends, can you, can you just tune in for a moment here to the devil's deception? Satan promises so much, doesn't he? He promises freedom, he promises fulfilment. What he actually delivers is lostness and a profound sense of loneliness. And however things appear on the outside, inside, the scream is never far away. Well, John's vision, you see, is teaching us that this kind of pain comes from the pit of hell. And yet, it is under the sovereign control of God. Because God sends the angel to sound the trumpet. And you and I, you see, can see the trumpet of pain as a sign of God's displeasure at human sin. But it's not just that. It is also a loving Warning. So think about this. Physical pain serves a very important biological purpose. I mean, it would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? Lepers have this problem. Not to experience physical pain. I mean, just imagine leaning on the stove in your kitchen when it's switched on, uh, but you don't realise it because you don't experience pain you're going to suffer a great deal of damage because of that. So pain is important, isn't it? Because it tells you something is wrong and it demands that you deal with the situation and you get treatment. Well, in exactly the same way, suffering serves a vital spiritual purpose. 
because it's designed to alert human beings that something is wrong. It points us to the anger of God and it pleads with us to look to him for healing and for mercy. So, the wake-up call of natural disasters, the wake-up call of pain, thirdly and lastly, the wake-up call of death. The angel sounds the sixth trumpet, verse 13, and in verse 16, 200 million troops are released. Now, while the locusts uh, are only allowed to cause pain but not kill, this kind of vast, demonic cavalry regiment have a license to kill up to a third of all mankind. Now, once again, it's an awful picture that John is giving us here. Uh, Did you notice the horses uh, with heads of lions and fire and smoke coming out of their mouths? Tails swishing like snakes with the power to strike. Uh, These horses are lethal uh, at the front and at the back. And they're charging relentlessly in huge numbers. And sometimes they, they target entire nations, even the whole world. So this year, it's, uh, it's 80 years, isn't it, since World War II began. The horses were charging then. That was the deadliest conflict in human history. By the time the war ended, there were 85 million casualties from 21 countries. And so today, in in most public buildings around the world, you'll still find a long list of those who perished in the Second World War. And John, you see, is saying that that slaughter was caused by this evil mounted cavalry in Revelation chapter 9. Sometimes they attack a city, uh, as they have done repeatedly in Syria uh, and in several other countries in the Middle East. And you know, sometimes, I don't know whether you feel this, but I feel when you look at the news clips of places like Homs and some of these other cities that have been targeted by the Islamic State, you know, you, you haven't really got words to describe the devastation, have you? And that's when the imagery of Revelation chapter 9 makes perfect sense. Human beings are utterly helpless in the face of that kind of onslaught. Sometimes it comes to individuals and to families. One one minute we're feeling strong and in control and everything's right with the world and then suddenly out of nowhere the, the diagnosis is given by the doctor and there's nothing we can do. Or, or we get the phone call that someone that we love and care about has been killed in a car accident. The point is that the sixth trumpet in Revelation 9 is sounding wherever there is death. Whether it's on the battlefield, uh, or in the hospital, or on the roads, or in the crematorium. And surely of all of these trumpets, trumpets, this is the one that should get us thinking. And yet it is amazing, isn't it, how the majority of people turn a deaf ear to the sixth trumpet. We don't want to know. We, we prefer to hide behind a form of words that disguise the actual reality. So we say things like, 
she's passed away uh, or she's no longer with us. Because to say she's dead, that's actually too brutal and we can't deal with it. Louis XV of France told his servants never to mention the word death in his presence. He couldn't bear it. And we don't want to know either. But the problem is death comes, doesn't it? Gillian was talking about that last week, the man who came to our carol service. And the funerals that you and I attend give us an opportunity to think about our own mortality. Because the Bible, you see, is saying death should not happen. Shouldn't happen. It was not meant to be. See, God is the source of life. He is life. And it's as we turn away from him, uh, as it were, turn away from life, that what we're actually doing is embracing death. And our physical death is pointing to the spiritual death that's still to come. Spiritual death meaning separation from God. And that's what we're doing when we turn away from Almighty God in this life. So this trumpet is also, therefore, a reminder for you and I to think about the one who conquered death, who alone in human history has the power to defeat the grave. So do you remember when Jesus went to the home of a family mourning the loss of their young daughter? Uh, Everybody said, well, thank you for coming, but you're too late. Uh, You shouldn't have bothered. Uh, Nothing you can do now. And yet Jesus insisted on going in to see her. And very wonderfully, the, the actual words he spoke are recorded for us in the Bible in Aramaic because they were the words he spoke. And he said to the dead girl, Talitha Kum, which means I say to you, little girl, get up. And she did. Or he goes to the house where they're mourning the loss of his friend Lazarus. And he insists on going to the tomb. And everybody says, don't go, he's already been there four days. There'll be the most appalling smell. But Jesus insists that the stone gets rolled away and he speaks into the tomb. Extraordinary thing to do. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And one of the most amazing understatements in the entire Bible by the pen of John is the dead man came out. Well, you can't have a greater understatement than that, can you? And then, of course, Jesus himself faced death as he hung on the cross. Friends, death comes to all of us. We don't know when. Jesus came for death. He chose it. He headed to what he knew was certain death. Disciples pleaded with him not to, but he said, I've got to go there because that's why I've come. And he did it for us. To take upon himself the death that you and I deserve. Not just the physical death, but the spiritual death. Permanent separation from the Father. But then he rose. He rose from the grave. And you see, the resurrection is a declaration from the throne of heaven that Jesus has conquered the grave. 
Now, every single death is an urgent call from Almighty God to think about our own mortality and to look to Christ as the one, the only one, who's conquered it. And yet it's amazing because so many people turn a deaf ear to these trumpets. The Bible is so realistic. Please fix your eyes on verse 20. You know, they've had these marvellous warnings. Is there a revival? Verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now that is absolute madness, isn't it? It's rather like the person, isn't it, who has an urgent appointment on Monday morning, Um, perhaps it's a job interview, they desperately need a job, they've got no money, the alarm goes off, loud and clear, but instead of getting out of bed, they pull the pillow over their head, turn over and go back to sleep. Or perhaps more poignantly, it's like children playing on a railway track. And the bell is sounding, um, warning them that a train is coming. And the bells sound louder and louder and more insistently. But the children carry on playing their game on the tracks. A game, actually, they're not really enjoying. But they don't listen to the warning as the train bears down upon them. Well, it's not a very nice image, but that is the picture in Revelation 9. You see, God is love. He is full of love for sinners like me and sinners like you. But he's also just. And in these trumpet calls in human history, there are signs of his judgment. He cares about wrongdoing. God is not indifferent to wrongdoing. And yet, the trumpet calls are not just reminders of his justice. They are reminders of his everlasting love. And he's saying, I want to warn you before that seventh and final trumpet sounds. For those of us who are Christians, who've already trusted in Jesus, the trumpet sounds a reminder God cares. He's not indifferent to the horrors caused by sin. He hates it, he's angry about it, but he is in control. And one day the seventh trumpet will sound and we will be taken to be with him forever in the new creation. A world without misery or sin or death or pain. But for those who are not Christian this morning, these six trumpet calls are alarm bells from God. And God is saying, wake up and trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not indifferent to the evil in the world. 
you are a God of justice and judgment. And we thank you too for your loving warning so that we might run to Christ and trust in him while there's time. Help us to do that and to persevere in all the mess of this present world, keeping our eyes on him. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.